Bibles and open to the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. As we've had a privilege to observe the Lord's table together this year, we have been working our way through this great Old Testament text that prophesies of what Jesus has accomplished. And tonight we really come to the last uh, stanza of this hymn, as it were, this hymn of uh, the servant song, as it's often referred to. And we come to the last stanza this evening from Isaiah 53. I do want to take time to read uh, the whole servant song once again tonight, since this will be the last time that we read this for some time as a church family together. Uh, But before I do, let me just remind you of the way that that this is laid out. So when we read it, you can follow along with understanding. This is a song of of five stanzas consisting of three verses each. So it begins actually in chapter 52 in verse 13. And 13, 14, and 15 are stanza one. Chapter 53, 1 through 3, or stanza 2, and so on and so forth. And every three verses makes up a stanza, five stanzas in all. And sometimes in uh, our typeset in the English Standard Version, you can see that very easily. But one of the other ways that, that Hebrews actually wanted to emphasize things as they wrote, they would use something called uh, chiasm. And that's just a a technical term Uh, that comes from actually a Greek letter of the alphabet, the letter key. And uh, that letter, if you were to look at it on paper, would look like an X. And so you have it wide at the top and wide at the bottom. And then right where there's the crossing right there is is the point. and, And X marks the spot, as they say. So oftentimes in Hebrew writing, in the Hebrew mind, when they would write things, they would write in what's called a chiastic or chiastic structure in order really to emphasize the middle of the thing. And that's very much what is going on in this servant song in Isaiah 53. And if you've been with us at all, you've seen this slide before, but I think it helps us if we lay it out this way. And the first stanza of this song, 52, 13 to 15, you have the servant, the servant of the Lord, referring to the Messiah, ultimately, his success. And it speaks that he was repulsive, but, but redemptive. That's why he came. In the second stanza, you have the servant's suffering. He lived in rejection. And then in that third stanza, you have the significance of this servant, And that really is where the crux of this song is focused. Right there, verses 4 through 6, where you have these terms of substitution. He did this for us. He bore our iniquities. And then it kind of fans out again in that fourth stanza, 53, 7 through 9. Again, we read of the servant's suffering and that he died in innocence or he died in silence. And tonight, finally, we'll look at that last stanza, and it talks about the servant's success. He was crushed but victorious. 
So on the left side of that screen, you can see kind of like the X pattern, right, that moves into C. But it's really that middle stanza, verses 4 through 6, that are the crux of the passage where the author and God himself being the ultimate author is pointing our attention. But tonight, I want to give our attention to the last of these stanzas, verses 10 to 12. So let's read them together. I'll read aloud as you follow along, but maybe the structure will help you. 52.13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for (laughs) guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many to make intercession for the transgressors. When I was a freshman in college, uh, we had a Bible class, and the professor in that class, as kind of an extra credit question, asked everyone at the end of a quiz, which Gospels include the resurrection? Simple question. You have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Which ones contain a record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Maybe this would surprise you. I didn't get the extra credit. Do you know how many of those Gospels give record of the resurrection? It's kind of a trick question. The fact is, they all do. Because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. When we think of the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we think in terms of his substitutionary atonement for us. But if we miss the resurrection, we miss the gospel. Do you realize that Isaiah 53, some have called the first gospel? Because it ends with a hint at the resurrection. Did you see it? I hope you will before the night is out. As we look at this last stanza of the servant song in Isaiah 53. And I want to preach to you on the success of God's servant. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 and on preparation for our observance of the Lord's table tonight. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we examine his word together. Lord, would you give us your mind tonight as we just consider the ways that you have so beautifully painted a portrait of what Jesus would endure and what he would accomplish and even his own perspective of that what it meant to him. And Father, help us to glory in these truths that you present to us. And help us to be mindful of our, as our, we observe this table tonight of his blood that was shed, his body that was broken, but indeed his being raised to newness of life and his conquering death. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There was a religious man by the name of Albert Schweitzer. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was uh, claimed to be Christian, but really he was a skeptic. He didn't believe the Bible. Schweitzer wrote a book called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. I'm sorry, Schweitzer never claimed to be a Christian. He was just a skeptic. He wrote a book entitled The Quest of the Historical Jesus. And in that book, Schweitzer was attempting to describe this man, Jesus. He didn't believe him to be God. 
He knew, though, that he was a historical figure and a profound historical figure that had some influence on all of humanity. And so Schweitzer and his skepticism was trying to figure out what exactly this Jesus accomplished being a man. What was he trying to do? And in his book, Schweitzer said that it was his perspective that that Jesus came and he was was an extraordinarily enlightened human being and he was trying to change the way society functioned. And he was doing all that he could to try and change the injustice and, and the suffering that was in the world in his day. And Schweitzer made this comment. He said it was if Jesus threw himself upon the wheel of history in an attempt to stop it and all the injustice that was taking place, but instead of being able to stop the wheel of history and reverse its direction, he was ultimately crushed by it, tragically. And that's how he ended. And it was Schweitzer's perspective that that Jesus' death was a horrific injustice He was a very good man and he he tried to prevent injustice and he stuck up for the poor and the helpless, but yet he himself couldn't stop history and he ultimately became a victim of it, crushed under the very thing he was trying to prevent. Well, is that true? When we read in Isaiah chapter 53 and in verse 9 and we read this about this servant that they would make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth was Jesus just a victim of injustice? This was a horrible tragedy? Was this just another example of the meaningless of life under the sun like the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us? I mean, this is just a hard world in which we live and sometimes things don't turn out well and and we're victims of circumstance. I'm sure all of you understand that that is not the case. But what I want to demonstrate to you is that this last stanza of of the servant's song tell us why that's not the case. What exactly was happening with Jesus on the cross? And what happened after that? Tonight we're going to be very simple. This is the only slide I have for you. But if you want to take some notes, I just want to group it under these three headings. What was the success of God's servant? Verse 10 tells us about God's will. Notice it begins that way in the first line. It was the will of the Lord. In the last line, it finishes that way. This was the will of the Lord. Verse 11 speaks of the joy of God's servant. And it speaks of it in these ways. The first line, he was satisfied. He would see something and be satisfied. And finally, we're going to note in verse 12, God's reward. What was God's estimation of what took place with his servant? And we'll find his reward in that 12th verse. Notice how this stanza begins, verse 10. It's a little word, the word yet. And this is a word of contrast. Again, we read what immediately precedes this, that they made his grave with the wicked, even though he had done no wrong. He himself wasn't wicked. There wasn't even deceit in his mouth. 
and yet they considered him wicked and made his grave with those. And yet there was something else taking place on the cross. Why would it happen this way, this seemingly extreme injustice? Well, notice the first line of verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to do what? To crush him. This was God's will. That this seeming injustice would take place. The New Testament writers are very clear about this. In fact, the apostles in their early preaching and praying made particular note of this, that what happened on Calvary's cross wasn't a terrible accident. In fact, it was predetermined. Let me show you this. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 And you have the preaching of Peter at Pentecost. And remember, this is just 50 days after the crucifixion. And here in the same city where these events had just taken place, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 And here's Peter's message to these people. Acts 2.22, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite what? Plan and foreknowledge of who? God. You did what? Now they did the crucifying, there's no doubt about that, and they killed him by the hands of of lawless men. But who had predetermined that? God had. And Peter makes that clear. This was nothing less than God's will. These early believers noted this again. Look over at Acts chapter 4. Here you have the believers, they they are being persecuted, Peter and John are are preaching and they're brought before the council of the elders there in Jerusalem and they are threatened and told don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And so when Peter comes back to the group of believers, they all pray together and look at what they say in their prayer. Verse 27, we'll jump right into the context, Acts 4.27. They pray together, they're praying to God for truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to take place. And what they're saying is, certainly all these things took place in Jerusalem. It appeared to be a terrible tragedy, but when they go back and reflect upon what God had said in His Word, they realize God had been planning this all along. This was the will of God. What was the will of God? Go back to Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord, the first line, to crush Jesus, crush His servant. He, God, has put Him to grief when His soul 
makes an offering for guilt. This was God's will, the soul of Jesus as an offering for guilt. Now, some very interesting things here. Why does he speak of this as a guilt offering? It was two years ago that we observed the Lord's table on Sunday evenings as we do, and we went through those offerings in Leviticus. And I'm sure you recall all of those with great detail. But because I don't, I'm going to rehearse it for you, okay? You may recall that in the book of Leviticus there are five offerings. That book opens with five different kinds of offerings. Three of those offerings required an animal sacrifice. They were the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And what those offerings pictured for God's people is that sin is deadly. In fact, sin costs a life. But God provides a substitute. However, one of those offerings goes a bit beyond that. And it's actually the guilt offering. The guilt offering is the most comprehensive of those three. Because the guilt offering not only included a substitute, an animal to die in my place, but it also included a recompense. In other words, there was something that that was done that should have been done and wasn't, so there's restitution provided. There was the repayment of of a defrauding or something in that regard. And it was the most comprehensive of those things to cover all the guilt that was brought about by by that lack of obedience to God's law. It was the satisfying of a debt owed. And the guilt offering brought that designation. So when we think of of sin before God and our being guilty before God, we commonly think of it in terms of transgression. God has said, here is what you must not do. I do it. I have transgressed. I have crossed the boundary. Therefore, I am guilty before God. I have sinned. And this guilt offering, it includes the other side of that equation, Because not only am I guilty as a transgressor to transgress God's law, but I am guilty of the fact that I do not perfectly keep His righteous law. I'm guilty, we could say, of sins of omission, not just sins of commission, sins that I commit, but actually sins that I omit. Well, what would that be? What are the things that I omit that are sinful? Well, God says that I am to love my neighbor as myself. And that's not just in the New Testament. That's in the book of Leviticus. Who here would dare say, I have perfectly fulfilled that command of God? The Bible requires, and God says it is good, that I honor my father and mother perfectly. Who would claim to have done that? The Bible says that I am to be submitted to all of those that are in authority over me and uphold them. And we don't. And by our omission of that, we're guilty before God. And so when the Bible speaks in terms of this guilt offering, it's the guilt offering that really deals with that issue. 
That yes, there's transgression that, that, that I have committed, but there are also things that I have omitted and I must bring restoration by doing those things. And so when we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 10 and it talks about the soul of the servant, the soul of Jesus, he makes an offering for guilt. It's that he is satisfying not only the requirement of those sins that we, we commit, but he's also satisfying those things that we omit. And he's making up the lack for those as well. We are guilty of these things, and yet we're told that God, by his grace, he has taken his servant Jesus to provide what we lack. And his soul makes an offering for this kind of guilt. And notice that we read in the middle of verse 10, it's his, it's his soul that makes this offering. When we think in terms of the Lord's death, we often think in terms of his physical body, right? That, that's represented in these elements. We think in terms of the physical suffering and pain. But what this passage is emphasizing is that that was inside of him, his soul, and notice we're told in verse 11, what did his soul experience out of the anguish of his soul? Physical death is a horrible thing. But may I suggest to you that this anguish of soul is far worse? What is it that Jesus suffered in the anguish of his soul? One pastor has said this. When Jesus died, he did not die as a Christian martyr. If you read anything of church history and Christian martyrs, you know that Christian martyrs often die with a song on their lips. They're so assured of their relationship to God and their standing upon that which is true for their soul's keeping that they face death with a courage and almost a joyfulness. And it's their estimation, what can death do but make me infinitely better? They die with the grace of God upon them. Jesus died with all the divine wrath of God's law upon him. His soul experienced the anguish of a just and righteous God. And it was anguish of soul. God who finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked finds pleasure in the death of the righteous one. This was his will. This is what must be done. And yet, we read this, that fourth line in verse 10. Here's this servant that makes his soul this offering in anguish for the guilt of people. Yet, he, that's speaking of the servant, he shall see his offspring, 
he shall prolong his days. The servant shall see his offspring and prolong his days. This one who had a grave in verse 9, who was crushed by the Lord in the beginning of verse 10, he's going to see his offspring. How's he going to do that? He's dead. The older I get, one of the greater anticipations and joy I have is not only to see my offspring, but perhaps my children's offspring. And who knows? Maybe by God's grace, their offspring. I don't know. But for that to happen, I would have to live a very long time. I would have to be alive to be able to see that. Here, this says, the servant, though dead, he's going to be able to see offspring. His days will be prolonged to see this. Well, what does that mean? Is it, does it possibly mean physically? The Lord Jesus never married. He never had offspring. What's this referring to? Well, look with me at the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. I think the author here shed some light upon this for us. Hebrews chapter 2, notice with me verse 9. And it's speaking of Jesus here. The writer says, But we see him, that's Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that's speaking of his incarnation, um, namely Jesus. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many, what? Sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's talking about God. And in order that God would bring many sons like offspring to glory, in other words, deliver them from their marred image and bring them to a glorified state, that he would do that by making the founder of their salvation perfect, how? Through suffering. What it's saying is that this was God's plan, that, that Jesus would suffer and die, but live, and in doing that, he would be like the first one of many who are like him in glory. And this was God's plan. And I think that's exactly what Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, that, that the servant, though dead physically, he would be alive and he would see that he is the beginning of like a new creation. People made new in Christ. Many sons brought to glory and daughters. In fact, Jesus talked about this. John chapter 12. 
And Jesus there, he's, he's having a discussion, and, and he says this to his followers. He says, unless a corn of wheat fall into a ground and die, it abides alone. But if that wheat fall into the ground and die, what happens? That seed is planted, and there's a harvest. And Jesus is talking about his own death, and he's saying, Here is the death of one that I would die. But if I die, there's going to be, dare I say, offspring. There's going to be new life as a result of that. That's why Jesus would pray in the night before his crucifixion in his high priestly prayer, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And now he prays in that high priestly prayer. Now, Lord, may they see my glory, like the glory I had with you before the foundation of the earth. And Jesus is praying for those that will come to faith in him through what he has done, that they too would be given new life to be glorified and live forever in heaven. Yet, all these years before then, Isaiah had seen this when he speaks of the servant and he says, though dead, he will see his offspring. He knows what this will accomplish. He shall prolong his days. In the end, it was the will of the Lord to crush his servant and the agony of his soul in order that he would take our place and bring many sons to glory. Taking the guilt of another was God's will for success for his servant until all God's children would be safely gathered in. This was success. Does that look like success? Rejection? Suffering? Dying? Would God require that of us and call it a success? He might if ultimately there was a greater end in that. Because that's exactly his will for his son. This was God's plan, it was God's will. The end of verse 10, the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. This is what Jesus did. Notice with me verse 11. This is the servant's joy. The servant's joy. We're told in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he that is the servant shall see and be satisfied. Now, if you're reading an English Standard Version next to your word see there, there's a little number. It's the number nine, and it directs you to the margin, and it says there's, there's a marginal reading on this. What is that marginal reading? Do you see it there? It says in the Masoretic text or in the Dead Sea Scroll, it says what? He shall see light. So it may read, out of the anguish of his soul, the servant would see light and be satisfied. I actually think that's a good reading because here's what I believe is being conveyed. There are differences of opinion about this. This is my best shot at it. What is really being conveyed here is this, is that Jesus, when he was in anguish of soul, making his soul an offering for guilt, he would see the light of that. 
in that darkness, he would be able to look beyond the darkness and know what that anguish would accomplish. It would accomplish the light of salvation. In this difficult thing he was doing in the will of God, he looked beyond to see that it would accomplish salvation. And therefore, the end of verse 11, he was satisfied by his knowledge, by knowing this. That's the other part of the verse that is difficult. This is a difficult translation in Hebrew. Our ESV has set it up in a different line where by his knowledge seems to go with what follows. I think it's best to read that as going with what precedes it. Out of the anguish of his soul, the servant would see the light and be satisfied by his knowledge of this. And so what is being described here? I think what is being described in this, that Jesus, when he is on that cross, when he is crying out, my God, my God, why have you, ex- why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing this anguish of soul that we're told in the book of Hebrews that he was able to look beyond that to see what he was accomplishing. And it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. That there was a sense of his completing God's will and that was satisfaction in his heart, knowing what he was doing. It's kind of like this. This is a simple illustration, but it's like this. It's like on a fall day when you go out and you look around and all the leaves are off your tree, but they're on your yard. And you know I've got to do something about that. So you go out and you get your blower or you get your rake or you get your mower or whatever you use and you clean up all those leaves and you put them in the place they should go and the grass is so green and you sit back and you look and you go, that was a lot of hard work, but man, that looks good. And it's finished. And I think that's the sense here that out of the anguish, though Jesus experienced this anguish of soul, he could see beyond it and know what this would accomplish. This would accomplish your salvation. It would accomplish your forgiveness. You could be free. And he's satisfied. I've made reconciliation with God possible. And he's satisfied. How is he satisfied? Look again at verse 11. Middle of the second line. The righteous one, my servant, makes many to be what? Accounted righteous. Accounting. How many of you like accounting? This is an accounting term. It's the idea of working things out to their proper end. It's actually a term of justice, as it were. And it's saying, because the righteous one offered himself a guilt offering... His side goes to your ledger and makes up the balance. You can be righteous because he is. And it's this great exchange. 
And Jesus, knowing full well in the agony of soul, accomplishing that on Calvary's mountain, is satisfied. This is a success. This will bring the Father glory. There's a final thing in here quickly. Verse 12. Verse 10, we've seen God's will or God's plan. Verse 11, we've seen the servant's satisfaction, his joy. And in verse 12, we read of God's reward. Therefore, now it's back to to God himself speaking. Because all of this has been done, all of this that has proceeded, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul to death. Dividing spoil and sharing portions, this is the picture of a military victory, of of a military commander that goes in and and is victorious in battle over his enemies, and therefore all the spoils of war are his, and they're at his disposal, and he shares them with his allies. And this is the picture that God says, because the servant will be victorious in this way. He will pour himself out and accomplish my will. He then will have an inheritance to be shared. Which makes a lot of sense, because look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians speaks of the redemption of Christ in this way. Colossians chapter 2, in verse 13, we read these words, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that's with Christ, having forgiven us of all our trespasses, He did this, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And notice verse 15, when he did that, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's speaking in terms of like Christ coming in battle and he is victorious. And this is speaking of his victorious resurrection over death. And he he parades his captors as it were. And he shares in the spoil like a triumphant general. Well, our question is, who are his allies that he's sharing the reward with? He's dividing the spoil. He's sharing the portion. Who are those people? Look at Romans chapter 8. Here the symbolism is different, but the idea is the same. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. So then, brothers... You who believe in Christ, who have trusted in him. We are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the children, then what? Heirs. We are heirs of who? Heirs of God. And that makes us fellow heirs with Christ. Heir, think of inheritance, think of reward. I believe the reward that is referred to in Isaiah 53 and ultimately will be Jesus and those who are in Christ, that that reward ultimately is the new creation. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And God says, because my servant has poured his soul out in anguish and made an offering, a guilt offering for sin, all who come to him and believe in him will enjoy the inheritance. They'll enjoy the reward of that. Satan is the prince and the power of this world and this air, but this time will pass and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and you and I will be there forever and we will enjoy the, the spoils of victory because we have placed our confidence in God's sacrifice for us. This is the success of God's servant. He was crushed, yet he's victorious. And let's remember that together now as a church family. I'll invite the deacons to come forward as we...